what people are talking about. Let me hit you with some knowledge. This is TalkZone.com, Internet Talk Radio. Now, the Dr. Robbins Show, talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Well, hi, and welcome to the Dr. Robbins Show. I am Larry Robbins, MD, here with my wife and co-host Susie Robbins, who is a social worker. We have, as usual, lots of interesting medical issues and stories of the day. We look at the interesting stories of the last week or so and present them to you. You can email us at www.headachedrugs.com. That's headachedrugs.com. Now, first I thought we would look at insomnia being linked to depression and anxiety. Insomnia is a very common problem. For some people, chronic insomnia may be a sign of broader mental health problems like depression and anxiety. In surveys of more than 25,000 Norwegian adults, they do some really cool epidemiologic studies in Norway. Researchers found that those with chronic insomnia were more likely to be suffering also from depression or anxiety. Sleep problems are common with people with depression and anxiety and certain other mental health conditions. But whether insomnia can lead to depression or anxiety is unclear and not proven. Uh, this study suggests that in some people, insomnia could signal a current anxiety disorder or be a risk factor for developing anxiety later on. In contrast, there was no great evidence that insomnia was a risk factor for future depressions. Instead, people who had insomnia were at a heightened risk of current depression and I really think that insomnia does fuel depression. It's a complicated mix. With people with depression, we often have insomnia. We often have fatigue. And it's a strange thing. A lot of times you'll treat the depression. People aren't sad anymore. They feel that their depression is 90% gone, but they're still very fatigued. And the more we look at tiredness and fatigue, some of it is from not sleeping well, but I think a lot of it is brain chemistry and what's going on in certain pathways of the brain. We're really way behind in the research into fatigue versus other conditions. We need more research because uh, a lot of the world is tired and it's a big complaint. In headache patients, you ask them their main complaint outside of headaches and it's, I'm tired. And you say, how long have you been tired? And they say, years and years. But many other people, people with immune system problems like lupus or Sjogren's, people with chronic fatigue syndrome, fatigue is, is a big problem. But I think that insomnia does probably fuel depression. If we don't get uh, in um, some good control of insomnia, often people stay depressed. And it's a ma- major, major problem. I know at times I've had some mild insomnia. And when you're just beat the next day and you can't get through the day, it's tough. It doesn't necessarily cause depression, but it just makes it tough getting through the next day. First of all, I've got a couple questions I'll ask you and maybe some of the listeners out they are also wondering, when you say fatigue, now I think of being fatigued as being tired, but are we always talking about feeling fatigued because of lack of sleep, or is it a general feeling of just being fatigued due to life stresses, due to day-to-day work? What are we? How are we clarifying fatigue? Well, fatigue is a general term, and that's a great question. Sleepiness is a little different. Some people are sleepy. They fall asleep at... at uh, Stoplights, they'll fall asleep as soon as they hit the couch. 
later on in the day or they'll fall asleep easily. Sleepiness is usually due to abnormal brain waves. People aren't sleeping well at night. Some people have a mild form of narcolepsy. But fatigue can mean sleepiness, but really what we're talking more about is body fatigue. Run down, just very tired, but not necessarily just sleepy from not sleeping. And fatigue, I think, is very complex. Sometimes it does involve people who aren't sleeping well, but some people sleep really well and are just fatigued for days, weeks, months, years, or a lifetime. So it, it's very complicated. And then some people are depressed and just run down, uh, and they're more emotionally fatigued and worn out. But when I talk about, we talk about sleepiness, where people are just falling asleep, versus their body fatigue, where they are just tired, it's hard to get through the day. And that can be complex. I think it's insomnia, but I think a lot of people's brain chemistry, they're just tired, uh, and then other people are never tired. I want some of that brain chemistry. Mostly people who are mildly bipolar, who don't get depressed much, but it's more the other way. They get what we call hypomanicky. They just have a lot of energy, and they don't need much sleep. They chronically only need four or five, six hours of sleep. And I wish we could skip the depression part of that and get some of that energy. Susie? Uh, well, thank you for clarifying that. You know, I'm also wondering, you know, different points in a human's life. Obviously, you know, people can be more fatigued if they're a college student and they're pulling all these all-nighters, studying for midterms or finals or a new mother who's home because she's physically up most of the night uh, tending to the baby. And what about menop- Is there a menopausal fatigue? Do women tend to become more tired just because of the shift or the decline in, um, in estrogen? Well, after, absolutely, and some women go on estrogen and feel better. Also testosterone. Women have testosterone just like men do, and both go down as we get older. So... Uh, into menopause at age 45 or 50, 55, our women's testosterone levels may be low, and that may um, lead to a lot of fatigue. Now, testosterone supplements are actually probably safer in women than in men. In men, testosterone can cause prostate cancer, but that's uh, not a problem in women. But fatigue is problem uh, is a problem with menopause. It's also a problem in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s as people get older, it's natural. People aren't sleeping as well, and for whatever reason, uh, they are tired. Back to my co-host, Susie Robbins. You know, another point um, that we could discuss with all of this is we know that there's a lot of people out there who have chronic insomnia. We also know there are a lot of people out there who have depression and anxiety. Say you take a, a person who happens to go to their doctor because of depression, uh the kind of depression where they can get up in the morning, they can go to work, they can function, but it's just kind of a low-level type depression where they just just don't feel that good. You know, things that used to make them happy just don't do it for them anymore. So let's say they um, are put on something by their doctor, say Zoloft. Can that help their insomnia as well? I'm thinking if their depression lifts and or anxiety is better, wouldn't that also help in their being able to sleep? Well, I think that it's a great question about antidepressant and sleeping. Some people sleep better on the newer antidepressants. Some people sleep worse. Some people, they wire their brain, and they go on Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Lexapro, 
any of them and get more energy or too much energy and can't sleep. Uh, in many people, though, it calms them down and they can sleep. And for that chronic low-level depression that we call dysthymia, uh, chronic low-level, say um, your normal state is... Uh, uh, is one state, you know, and you're just a little bit below normal. You don't have much motivation, not much joy in life. You can get through the day. You're not severely depressed. You're not, uh, staying in bed all day, etc. But that chronic depression, these medicines have been pretty good. They're called the SSRIs, the Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Lexapro. Now there's a couple newer ones. Effexor isn't so new, but it not only adds serotonin, but it adds in norepinephrine, the other neurochemical. And anything that adds norepinephrine can give you more energy, but interfere with sleeping. So effects are in a really new one that many people have been on, Cymbalta. Uh, it's a couple of years old now. Cymbalta adds in norepinephrine, and that can interfere with sleeping. So if somebody is really has insomnia and it's a big problem, we would tend to try to use a regular antidepressant, not uh, Effexor or Cymbalta that add in norepinephrine and might interfere with sleeping. Susie? I'm wondering if sometimes it can't become like a yo-yo pattern for some people who finally are feeling better during the day, but then they're feeling so good that they can't really calm down to go to sleep. And then maybe they'd have to seek out or would seek out um either over-the-counter or prescription medicine so that they could sleep at night? Well, it's interesting. Treating insomnia, we try non-medicine things. We try to use therapy and make sure people go to sleep at the same time. And there's a lot of sleep rules that we use outside of medicine. The -the over-the-counters aren't great for insomnia. Mostly they have diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl, which is an antihistamine. The problem is that's okay for some people, but many people... Benadryl or diphenhydramine, that's what's in Tylenol PM and Excedrin PM and most of the effective sleep, over-the-counter sleep medicines. Diphenhydramine uh, lasts 24 hours in a lot of people. They're sleepy and spacey the next day. Some people have severe reactions to it. So it's not always great. Sometimes we do use several different medicines. You know, in treating high blood pressure or other conditions, often we use two or three medicines. And in treating depression, there's different symptoms Sometimes a medicine will help the sadness, but not help the fatigue and sleeping. So we end up sometimes with more than one medicine, although we try to minimize medicine. Now, segueing on to a favorite topic of ours is which supplements should you take? Uh, it's really become apparent in the last couple of years. It's buyer beware out there in vitamin and herb land. We need things that are proven. And there's a number of new studies on supplements in the last few weeks Selenium, which is a natural, uh, it's a compound that we see naturally in the body. Uh, it's a metal that almost everybody in their normal diet gets enough selenium. 99% of people get enough selenium. But people thought maybe as an antioxidant, there's some small studies that selenium might decrease cancer risk. And I actually took it. Even knowing that we need large studies, I was taking selenium. And a new study just came out where people who took selenium every day for eight years were studied, and they had an increased risk of diabetes compared to taking placebo. Now, the uh, researchers said did say that we've observed an increased risk of diabetes over the long term in the group of participants who took selenium supplements. 
Results showed that 58 out of the 600 people assigned to get selenium uh, got diabetes, while only 39 out of the placebo group. So that's a 50% increase in chance of diabetes. So I threw my selenium into the garbage, which where our vitamin E went earlier, our vitamin C, and a lot of supplements that have not really worked out very well. Uh, now, the authors of this study said that the findings are very substantial and that since we get enough selenium in our diet, maybe we shouldn't take them. You, you do have selenium in your multivitamins, but uh, on another front, multivitamins have had problems lately. Uh, when they looked at consumerlabs.com, looked at 20 of them, 18 turned out not to have exactly what's supposed to be, and 8 had lead levels. And on this show before, a few weeks ago, we talked about men who got prostate cancer, who took multivitamins, got more severe prostate cancer. So maybe we shouldn't take multivitamins. But certainly selenium, I think um, the uh, risks probably outweigh the benefits. You know, it looks as if only uh, vitamin D uh, and omega-3s, which are fish oil, flaxseed oil, uh, capsules are uh, really holding up in study after study as being pretty good. Probably folic acid as well. Um, folic acid, unfortunately, didn't help the heart like we thought it might, but it does help other things. But relatively few vitamins and supplements are really holding up. I'll go over to my co-host, Susie. Susie, do you take uh, vitamin D? I do take vitamin D. I take it with my calcium every day. And then, you know, based on our conversations and what you've heard, I've also, for the last few months, been taking an additional 700 milligrams or so of vitamin D every day. I stopped taking my multivitamin, uh, all-around vitamin um, supplement months ago, but I am also taking uh, the fish oil. And what else? I think that's it, but certainly... Can you uh, tolerate the calcium? A lot of people tell me that calcium is pretty big. It gets stuck or they can't swallow it. Well, I, t- I, I do think I should take more than what I'm taking. Um, I'm taking calcium tablets. I'm, I'm not sure what the... I think there's 600 is. milligrams. Yeah, I'm yeah. just taking one a day. I know I should up it, but I don't always feel good when I up it, so I just try to eat more yogurt and foods loaded with calcium like spinach and things like that. And dairy products mostly. You get dairy. You, you know, a few patients have quit their calcium and told me that their headaches went away. I have one remarkable patient who had daily migraines, and they went away without the calcium. But in general, it's it's fairly inert stuff. You know, I'll bring up this new study that we were going to talk about a little later, but we'll talk about it now that we're talking about vitamin D, where besides vitamin D lowering cancer risk and, of course, being good for osteoporosis and uh, skin and bones, a new study showed that people who had higher levels of vitamin D have lower blood pressures a little bit. It wasn't dramatic, but it was enough that it really matters. Uh, So... The question is how to get vitamin D and which type. It turns out we want D3, and vitamin D3 doesn't usually come in your multivitamin. That's usually D2. I usually like people to take a separate supplement uh, where it just says D, and you check on the back, it's D3, vitamin D, and we want at least 800 units a day, and some of the experts are now saying uh, 1,600 units a day, uh, and some people do need more. Susie? What about getting additional sun? Is that as good as taking the vitamin D tablets? 
Well, that's the problem is we need sun. Uh, I think back when a lot of our um, genes were formed uh, and back in the early human days, we were out in the sun and we didn't have sunscreen 100,000 years ago or 50,000 years ago. And so we got vitamin D out in the sun. But certain illnesses like multiple sclerosis are tied into D levels. As we go away from the equator towards north, towards the North Pole, we have more multiple sclerosis. So at the latitude we're at around Chicago, I remember in neurology, uh, when I did um, uh, neurology in Chicago, general neurology, and now I do more pain and headaches and uh, things like that, but uh, in neurology, we see a lot more multiple sclerosis around Chicago than you do down in Savannah, Georgia, for instance. And it's because of sun levels. They just followed a study where they looked at 2 million people in the Army with vitamin D levels. And uh, the higher the D, the lower the multiple sclerosis. So we do need the sun, but then everybody's afraid about skin cancer, and we don't uh, can't get in the hot sun enough. So it, it is probably easier to just punt and take a a vitamin D supplement. Now, on to another study that I don't want to promote smoking, but it's always interesting uh, findings such as this, that a, a study finds that smoking cigarettes and maybe cigars and pipes wards off Parkinson's disease. And this has been bantered about before, but there's more evidence to back up a long-standing theory that smokers are less likely to develop Parkinson's disease than people who never use tobacco products. This review found that the effect seems to extend beyond cigarettes to pipes and cigars and maybe chewing tobacco, and that it persisted among those who had stopped smoking years earlier. So if you stop smoking, you may have some protection from Parkinson's later on. It certainly is a ridiculous reason to smoke because there's 82 bad things about smoking, uh, such as heart disease, lung cancer, and that it'll kill you, but at least it's interesting to note that uh, people may get less Parkinson's. Uh, other tobacco products also appear to be protective, they said. Men who smoke pipes or cigars had about a 50% lower risk. And chewing tobacco, which is terrible in itself, it gives you mouth cancer, which is horrendous. If you've ever ha- had uh, a family member or friend or treated somebody with mouth cancer, it's it's horrific. But uh, chewing tobacco may actually lower it, too. So maybe all those baseball players, although I guess maybe not. now they just uh, chew bubble gum and blow bubbles at the umpires. So it's interesting. Uh, it, it raises in my mind new drugs, nicotine agonists. Uh, the first one that may hit that receptor, the nicotine-type receptor, was Shantix from, uh, I think, Pfizer makes it. It's C-H-A-N-T-I-X, which is for stopping smoking. And it works on receptors in the brain uh, that work on nicotine, just like smoking. And Chantix, uh, in my mind, has actually been pretty successful, unlike most things for stopping smoking. I've had five out of seven people quit smoking now. Uh, And this this study is a little comforting. I I smoke a cigar here and there. I know I shouldn't, but, you know, you have to have some vices. Uh, for gosh sakes, I'm telling you. Susie? Well, I think in our generation now, uh, there's a lot less people who smoke that used to, although I can certainly sympathize with people who smoke. I was a smoker for years and gave it up about 
10, 12 years ago. But what about all those people out there who never smoked but grew up in homes where there was a lot of smoke? I wonder if this study would also uh, point to those people being a little bit more protected against Parkinson's. It's a great question. You know, to my knowledge, they haven't looked at secondhand smoke as far as protection against Parkinson's. But it wouldn't surprise me if people, like in my house where parents smoked and everybody smoked and there was always a layer of smoke, it was ridiculous. And in the car, you could hardly breathe. But maybe it protects you from Parkinson's later on. And certainly it's not good for anything in your lungs and endurance, but maybe later on it does protect you. But, of course, the overall idea is let's get tobacco out of this country and uh, as much as we can and limit smoking. You know, when I look around, it's unbelievable how far we've come. It was just 20 years ago that in the hospital that I worked, doctors smoked, patients smoked, everybody smoked, didn't seem to matter, or in restaurants, and now uh, we have come a long way. Well, we're going to take a very short break, and when we come back, we have lots and lots of interesting medical stories to fill you in on. You can reach us by visiting www.headachedrugs.com. That's one long word, headachedrugs.com. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Now more of the Dr. Robbins Show with your host, Larry Robbins, MD, on TalkZone.com. Well, we are back. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins here with my co-host, Susie Robbins. And the next interesting study, this came out this week, is smoking marijuana increases the risk for schizophrenia. Now, there's been other studies or mentions of this before. The study says that using marijuana increases the risk of one day developing a psychotic illness, such as schizophrenia. Psychosis or psychotic is where people are really not in reality. They hear things or see things or believe things that are not real. And according to the study, this provides some of the strongest evidence yet linking marijuana to a mental disorder. Many consider marijuana, many young people particularly, uh, consider it to be the same as alcohol or tobacco. And they say, well, it's only weed, it's only dope. But the results show that marijuana poses a danger many smokers do underestimate. The researchers found that marijuana users had a 41% increased chance of developing schizophrenia or psychosis marked by hallucinations or delusions later in life uh, than those who never took it. And the heavier the consumption of marijuana, the more the increased risk. The uh, researchers did go on to say that uh, the results mean an estimated 800 cases of schizophrenia, at least in the United Kingdom where the study was done, could be prevented each year by ending marijuana consumption. Quote, we therefore agree with the author's conclusion that there's now sufficient evidence to warn young people that marijuana use will increase their risk of psychosis. And we've described a consistent association between marijuana use and psychotic symptoms, including very disabling psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia. And my only issue with studies such as this is the chicken and the egg. If you look at people who are schizophrenic, uh, they're more likely, I believe, to be smoking marijuana before the onset anyways. It's part of their illness. Uh, they're all cigarette smokers, almost all people with schizophrenia. And I think that they're more likely to get into smoking marijuana, but definitely the marijuana fuels the onset of schizophrenia and makes it much worse. 
the little that I do know about schizophrenia is that typically somebody who is going to get it will typically get it as a young adult, meaning 18, 19, 20 years old. So for all those people listening out there that might have smoked a lot of marijuana in their teens and they're well into their 30s at this point, can we safely tell them that, don't worry, you're not going to get it because typically you're going to get it when you're much younger? Well, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, people are not going to develop schizophrenia, uh, or at least it would be very, very rare, at 35 or 45 years old. But they might get some other psychotic. They can get a psychotic depression. And in the study linking marijuana to schizophrenia, I didn't see them talk about uh, getting depressed later on in life with psychotic features. Some people who get depressed are a little paranoid or more than a little, or they they can hear voices or see things. Uh, or they feel that uh, people are out to get them, et cetera, et cetera. And it's called a psychotic depression or depression with psychosis. And maybe marijuana use increases that risk. Uh, we do know that a lot of people smoke marijuana to cover up depression moods. That's why people often take drugs, drink alcohol, pills, marijuana, heroin, whatever. It's uh, they're, they're treating their mood disorder. And uh, I think that... Uh, I don't, we don't want to worry people that they're going to develop schizophrenia at age 45 because they smoke marijuana at uh, 20 and 25. Susie? You know, it's interesting because so many young people, at least the experience that I've had working in a high school with kids with um, issues uh, around marijuana and other drugs, is that marijuana it comes across as being the safest of all drugs. Uh, you know, as we've talked about on the show before that, you know, kids will see it as it's this natural plant that's grown in the ground and, you know, how could something like that really hurt you? But it's interesting that here is yet another point that's made that um, what marijuana can do for people is bring out um, a psychosis like this. So it's not such a healthy thing to take. Yeah, marijuana is in the end a mild hallucinogen. Uh, it can... And the type of THC, in, uh, which is the active ingredient in marijuana, the strength of THC is two to eight times more than it was in the 1970s with marijuana. It's really much stronger. Uh, the worst is LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide, which LSD uh, produces a hallucinogenic trip. And uh, for all the... Uh, People who were around uh, in college in the 60s and early 70s, LSD was popular. And then it makes its comeback here and there. A few years ago, it made its comeback in high schools again. But LSD will bring out symptoms of schizophrenia and will decompensate somebody who's on the edge much more severely than marijuana. Susie? Yeah, and also keeping in mind that uh, the marijuana that kids smoked a generation ago uh, was a lot milder, but also the way it was smoked was milder. It was rolled up in a cigarette form, and nowadays uh, people are smoking it in what they call a blunt, which is really like much thicker. They use like a cigar wrapping, so they're essentially getting a lot more um, into their system. Yeah, and I'm not this anti-drug crazed crusader, but uh, for all the people who do say that marijuana is not particularly addicting, uh, just ask the rehab people. Uh, they see plenty of young people who are addicted to marijuana. It may not be physically very much. It's really 99% psychologically, but it can be a powerful psychological addiction. 
Now we're going to jump to a new subject, which is a dramatic jump scene in trampoline-related injuries. Now I've harped on this before, and uh, our kids and Susie knows that I'm always uh, looking at trampolines and saying, oh, another emergency room visit. But it turns out that it's true. This new study shows that the number of emergency room visits by children injured on trampolines has more than doubled in the past decade. There were over half a million visits in 2000 to 2005 uh, for trampoline visits, uh, trampoline injuries, and it's probably more uh, now. The amount of the increase astounds us, says the researchers. For whatever reason, the message doesn't seem to be getting through. The dramatic increase was likely probably because of more trampolines around, more availability. The researchers did say that you can now purchase a backyard trampoline for relatively inexpensive amounts, $200 or so. And they note that 1.2 million new trampolines were sold in the U.S. in 2004. And, you know, it's always the law of unintended consequences, too. We see the new trampolines where they have the netting around it, which I think may or may not prevent uh, kids from falling off and falling to the ground and getting the severe head injuries. But... In, in medicine, we often see the law of unintended consequences. For instance, you'll see uh, netting around a trampoline, and I can just imagine that kids then take more chances or more kids are on them. So we might see other injuries such as fractures. Uh, according to the researchers, home tramps can never be truly safe. Parents really practically can't supervise kids to the extent that they need to be supervised on a trampoline, and we've certainly seen that in our neighborhood with kids just randomly and all the other kids coming over, hey, there's a trampoline over there, let's go. Susie, what do you think? I think the two words, head injuries, is what scares me the most because of the amount of kids that can actually really hurt their heads on a tramp. Yeah, we worry about the fractures, um, but anybody that's you know falls off a tramp and hits their head the wrong way could be... Uh, life-changing, and that's really scary. And I also think that the climate has changed, the landscape has really dramatically changed in our country legally. You know, 25 years ago, if you had a little mini tramp in your backyard or something, or a kid came over and he was playing, and he got hurt and went to the emergency room, uh, it was the medical, you, you felt bad and you attended the medical. Now there's always question of legal consequences. Neighbors sue neighbors. Uh, brothers sue brothers. Sisters sue sisters. It seems like everybody sues everybody. And it's not that far a stretch if a child is severely injured. Even if you have a tramp in your back and you didn't invite somebody over and they snuck in on it uh, and you didn't even know that they were there or your kids didn't know that they were there and they were injured severely on your tramp. Darn tootin', in this day and age, you may get sued and you have to go defend it. And people can say, well, we didn't even know, or they were trespassing, or this and that. But um, we all know that people have lost these lawsuits before, so that adds another risk. Susie, what do you think? It reminds me of, of people having pools in their backyards and having to be so vigilant about watching who's in the pool and also the concern that maybe a neighborhood kid might just sneak in one day when he knows the family's out to go swimming and what could happen if he's, he or she's in that pool unsupervised and um, 
and he drowns. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely, it's a great point. Uh, the, the legal aspects, I believe, personally, greatly decrease our quality of life. It's not just doctors who worry about getting sued or lawyers uh, are now getting sued or accountants. Uh, it's neighbors, and it, it makes people worried that if a kid trips and falls or something happens and they're going to be hit for $2 million judgment and take away their house and everything, it really decreases quality of life. In some ways, we had a kinder, gentler world, I think, in the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, but maybe that's just through the retrospective uh, analysis. We call it in medicine the retrospectoscope. And it's not always accurate because we don't always remember exactly what it was, but at least people weren't suing each other for millions of dollars as readily. Now, on to a very significant study that I think was well done. And the title is Involved Dads Make Up for Mom's Depression. When moms suffer from depression, their children are more likely to develop behavioral problems. But fathers can prevent this from happening, new research does suggest. The study found that fathers who were close to their children were able to buffer them against the effects of their mother's depression. This means that a father's active and passive involvement may help shield his child against the effects of maternal depression. The researchers found that although mother's depression was related to escalating child behavioral problems, this was not the case among children who said their fathers were highly involved in their lives. The researchers said that along with treating a mother's depression, health providers should encourage fathers to stay active in their children's lives. So what the researchers did say, quote, when the father readily compensates for the limitations on the depressed mother's functioning, the child's risks of problem behaviors may be reduced. And this all makes sense. You know, when I was a kid, my mother got severely depressed. This was in the 1960s, and we didn't have any Prozac or Zoloft around. I wish we did, because depression really ping-pongs, pinballs around the, the family. It affects spouses. It affects kids very much. Then it affects kids' kids. And, uh, you know, the medicines say what you want about the medicines, but there's a huge difference between uh, sitting in a room or sitting on a psychiatric ward being severely depressed, and at least uh, being 70% better on some medicine, like Prozac or Zoloft, and be able to function, then the kids are better. Uh, back in the 50s and 60s, many fathers weren't that involved. Uh, fathers classically then, except for um, uh, Mr. Ward and Leave it to Beaver, fathers were not uh, that involved with their kids' lives. They sort of knew that there were people with littler feet than them running around the house, but they weren't all that Involved, But this study, I think, is very significant. It says that uh, when moms are depressed, we ought to address the dads, talk to the dads, maybe get the dads in counseling, and, and really talk to the dads about maybe cutting back on work and being more involved with the kids. You know, it's interesting. Um, I couldn't help but think about, as you were describing that situation, that the reality is, is for many, many families in our country that divorce happens when the kids are young. And what about for many of those kids who end up living with mom? Maybe dad's suddenly out of the picture, doesn't come to pick up the kids that much, doesn't see them. Mom's in a bad spot, suddenly dealing with being a single mom, might be depressed over the end of the marriage. Um, so here you've got a family where the kids are living with mom, mom's depressed, 
and dad not only is not helping to pick up the pieces, but isn't seen as much anymore. Maybe has moved out of state. Maybe mom's taken the kids out of state. Boy, that seems like a really bad combination for kids. Yeah, and I think that studies have indicated, uh, too, during divorce, that sometimes the kids, though, do better because there's less conflict. Uh, it's a measure of conflict. So the last two years before divorce and separation, uh, there's a lot of conflict, and the kids don't do as well, and then they do better afterwards. But that's a great point. If the mom gets very depressed, which is common during divorce, and then if the dad is not around or is less, that's why I hate it when I see dads who divorce their kids. It's one thing to divorce your spouse, but why do they have to walk away from their kids and divorce their kids? It's just not fair. Let's take a quick time out, but stay with us on TalkZone.com. You found the best place for quality Internet talk around the clock and around the world. TalkZone.com. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Now, the next topic, you may think that this is a sports topic, but I think it's a societal topic. The headline is, Some Golfers Take Drugs to Boost Their Game, says Gary Player, who is a longtime great Hall of Fame golfer from South Africa. And tour golfers are taking performance-enhancing drugs and escaping sanction because the, sco- the sport does not have... Drug testing, said Gary Player. I know there are golfers doing it, whether it's human growth hormone, whether it's creatine, or whether it's steroids. I know for a fact some golfers are doing it. And I would say in the world today that there's maybe 10 guys taking something. I might be way out, definitely not going to be lower, but it might be a heck of a lot more. One guy told Gary Player that I won't tell you where, but I see... Uh, massive changes in uh, some of the golfers. A uh, player uh, who's really very honest says that every doctor he's gone to has offered him human growth hormone. Uh, he says, Gary Player says, that I've really done everything I wanted to in golf. I don't need to take steroids. And he is an older player now. But um, the interesting thing, and the reason I mention this, I think a lot of youngins, do take steroids. They see the huge bodies that the wrestlers have, that the football players have. They're in high school, and they're under a lot of pressure if they're a high school football player, for instance. You know, the high school linemen have gone from averaging 180 pounds when I was in high school, um, late 60s, early 70s, to close to 300 pounds now, which is not good for them future-wise as far as diabetes and high blood pressure. They're really sacrificing their future health for a few years of football. Admittedly, football is fun, but we have to think, um, is it worth taking years and decades away from these kids' lives? Uh, but they, they're under a lot of pressure to be ultra-strong, to be huge, and uh, steroids help it. Now, I think that uh, with golf, it's unique. It's not like football or baseball or wrestling, uh, where steroids uh, may do some good things as far as strength. It might hit the ball longer. But it really, I think, would take away from part of your game. Uh, in golf, you need to be calm. You need to be focused. It's 90% mental. All the guys can pretty much hit. And steroids uh, may very well take uh, away from that. And they used to have a, a saying in golf, you drive for show, but you putt for dough. And what really separates the wheat from the chaff, the great golfers from the mediocre, 
is the short game, chipping and putting. And when you're standing over a putt, if you're on steroids, it's not only not going to help you at all, it's going to make you a little nervous. You might get a little tremor, which you can get from steroids. Uh, it might give you the yips, the quivers, the shakes, whatever we want to call them. And I don't think it's going to help. So I think that the steroid problem may be limited in golf. Uh, it's not like football, et cetera, where you want to get big and huge. But there are, is a role for steroids. Uh, I could see from a golfer standpoint, it's a long season. They may want to get more energy, recover from injuries faster. Uh, so I, I imagine that some players would want to do them. The problem with the anabolic steroids that we're talking about that athletes take and uh, a lot of young kids take is that um, they lead to problems with almost every organ in your body. Pick an organ and it'll lead to problems. And they lead to early deaths. They lead to uh, heart attacks. They also lead to behavioral changes and craziness in people. So um, whether we need drug testing in golf or not, they probably should do some sort of drug testing and have a program. But I don't think it's going to be the problem that it's been in uh, football or wrestling, etc. Now, on another front, there was an interesting article on older drivers this week. And it turns out that young drivers between 15 and 24 are three times more likely to cause car accidents as senior citizens. People over the age of 65 make up 15% of drivers. So they're 15% of drivers are 65 to 90 or whatever. But they're responsible for only 7% of the fatal two-car crashes in the last 25 years. Over the past 20 years, there's been a strong tend to adopt more laws and stringent licensing policies for older drivers. But the researchers suggest that maybe that's not all that warranted. The findings suggest that senior citizens are choosing to drive less frequently or stop altogether. They often play it safer. They're driving in daylight and avoiding dangerous conditions. Of course, they have a lot of experience, and you can't take away the experience factor. Uh, 16-year-olds are definitely much more dangerous than 17- and 18-year-olds, so I think there's a huge difference between 16-year-olds and 24-year-olds, but they lump them together in this study. On the one hand, requiring older drivers to take road tests would certainly identify some older drivers who have deteriorated, but our results show, the researchers said, that relatively few older drivers really need to be legally prohibited from driving. And interestingly enough, this is current because in Chicago, uh, we recently had a 94-year-old driver banged into a building, uh, and she clearly should not have been driving, but her license wasn't taken away. And a month later, she just plowed into a Panera Bread store, injuring a bunch of people. And the question is, what to do? Now, I heard uh, the usual shrill, shrill results on talk radio. I was listening to Chicago talk radio, and one of the talk radio hosts said, absolutely, everybody over age 80 should not be able to drive, period, the end. And the problem is, when we take away driving, it really decreases people's quality of life. A lot of people get very depressed. And we need studies like this to show that, yes, sometimes 94-year-olds plow into a building, and we need to maybe uh, have road tests every year for them and tests of their cognitive thinking abilities. But we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can't punish 
senior citizens uh, because this happens. Because the, the real danger really is, um, well, drunk drivers, but more sleepy drivers. Sleepiness and tiredness lead to a lot more crashes probably than anything. And too much speed in 16 and 17 year olds. Maybe we should raise it. Makes more sense to me to raise the driving age to 18. If we really wanted to get safer, let's raise the driving age maybe to 17 a year. Uh, let's prohibit distracted driving. You know, now it's hard to decrease calling, uh, or, uh, putting makeup on and eating in the car, but maybe we should get rid of phones and text messaging. Kids are text messaging, adults are text messaging in their in their car. Isn't it aggravating when you see somebody driving really crazy erratically towards you and they're, of course they're on the phone, they're text messaging? It's ridiculous. Well, certainly the elderly do have their foibles when they're driving, but I'm just trying to picture, can anybody out there picture uh, somebody in their 80s driving and on the phone while they're driving or even text messaging. No, because it's really something that's really much more relatable to young people. Although we certainly see lots of middle-aged people on the phone too. You know, maybe with the elderly, they're just much more focused on the driving and, um, but because of, you know, some loss of cognitive skills, you know, they do have the accidents. Um, but it is really good, heartening to hear that they're not causing as many accidents as people would like to think. Um, one other point is, is that maybe too, sometimes when we hear about accidents with the elderly, even though they're less likely when they do have them, they just are pretty bad, like driving into a window or driving into a building, you know, that sometimes when it does happen to them, it's, it's a pretty much a loss of control. Well, yeah, and I don't want to minimize uh, the risk. I think we do need to uh, test every year, but really test. A lot of times at the uh, driving facilities, the person testing feels sorry for the woman who's 86 years old, and it's sort of a wink and a nod. Uh, we need really to, to be serious about it. Susie? You know, a couple of years ago, I I was at our uh, Secretary of State office um renewing my license, and there was an elderly man in front of me uh, taking the eye test, and he failed it, and I felt really bad for him, but they told him he failed it. He took it again, and he didn't do well, and he was led away, and I don't know what happened to him, but I saw how upset he was, and you know, it really relates to what you were saying earlier about how it's devastating when somebody who's older realizes or is told they can't drive anymore. I, I think it just devastates people, particularly in rural areas or in the suburbs, because you just can't get around and are relatively infirm, some people, so that they can't walk into town, and it's just a big problem. However, on the other on the other hand, if somebody's vision is not up to snuff for driving or for whatever other physical or cognitive problems, as bad as we feel, they shouldn't be on the road either because in the end, somebody could get hurt. I think that we would go a much longer way towards safety on the roads if we cut down on cell phone driving, text messaging. Uh, there have been some interesting studies on fMRIs where they looked at functional MRI, it's called. They put people in a machine and they put them on a cell phone and they looked at how their brain is working and it turns out whether on the hands-free or the handheld, doesn't matter. Their brain is somewhere else. It's not concentrating at all when they're on a cell phone. 
So if you've ever been driving and you're on the phone and all of a sudden you realize you've gone three exits, you don't even know where you are, you've just been driving on automatic, well, that can happen without a cell phone, just listening to the radio or something. But because you're fooling around, you're looking down at the cell phone or the iPod, it's greatly distracted driving. I think there's different types of distracted driving, but maybe uh, we should not focus so much on restricting 80-year-old licenses and get rid of distracting driving instead. You know, the issue is, will education work with cell phones versus um, actually getting them out of cars? I don't think that education is going to do that much because people are really addicted to these cell phones. And somebody was telling me the other day, they had a fender bender. They got hit from behind a little bit. And the young lady gets out of the car and she's she hit him from behind. So you'd think that she'd be contrite and get out and say, I'm sorry, and look at the damage. No, she gets out. And she's finishing her conversation on her cell phone. She can't even put down her cell phone at that point. And I think it shows us where we are with this, that it greatly influences young people who have other distractions. They have three people in the car, they're text messaging, they got the radio, and it's just a huge problem. Well, we're about out of time. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins with my co-host Susie Robbins. You can email us and find us at headachedrugs.com. That's one long word headachedrugs.com and you can also find this show archived we have a number of shows on headachedrugs.com right on the first page see you next week you've been listening to the Dr. Robbins show featuring Larry Robbins MD and co-host Susie Robbins MSW learn more about Dr. Robbins online at headachedrugs.com and join us next time for more about health and medicine right here on the Dr. Robbins show on talkzone.com talkzone.com